How relevant do I have to be before people pay attention to a to an anti-Semitic rant? Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the Weekly Digest. My name is Tim Madura. And I'm Gerard Way's future best friend, Gavin Dillinger. This week and every week, we'll bring to you the best in news, reviews, and baboons. That's right, a new baboon fact every week. This week's fact, the baboon of all primates in East Africa most frequently interacts with people. That is brought to you by outtoafrica.nl slash animal slash angbaboon.html. I believe it's a Dutch site. Ah, uh, yes. Most Dutch sites end in .html. So, speaking of the Dutch, let's talk about a, a Czech Republican. <laughs> He's from the Czech Republic. And now moving on to our first news story. Alice, uh, about a month ago, Alice caught talked about some uh, abuser uh, on the prowl in comics. Um, he threw out the name, the names of uh, Mitch Gerards and Nate Edmondson, um, but never really said why he threw their names out, so we don't really know what's with that. Somebody asked him directly, who are you talking about and what are you talking about? And he said, get back to me in a month. So, a month later... The Outhousers approaches him about this, or rather, we, we write an article saying saying to everyone, hey, remember, he's going to make this, he's going to open up about this tomorrow. And he sees this article and backs out immediately. I don't know if he had plans to back out or what, but it's, I think there was a, a disconnect between his initial decision and what he decided on a month later. I think it's a, it's a good career move on his part to back out, because he would be burning a lot of bridges calling calling someone out. I mean, even if calling someone out as publicly as he did Nathan Edmondson just on Twitter, I think that was that was pretty brash and bold. Yeah, something I noticed today was that you look at Tom Brevert and Mark Wade and they will say crap to any fan. A lot of times they'll avoid that with the creators. And it's interesting that a creator can get away with uh, trashing their fans and insulting their fans, but not they can't say anything bad about another creator. I think it, it definitely is is defensive because every other creator is a potential collaborator or a potential boss, perhaps. Yeah, but and but then again, I mean, you look at the way Alice Cop talks about things. He's he doesn't seem much like the collaboration type, to be honest. How I, many different artists does Zero have? Wait, I don't know how many. There are too many dang comics. It's like the rent being too high. Can you guys just keep it down on the comics levels? <laughs> uh, there's just too much of a selection. I would really <laughs> like it if I could get just uh, Spider-Man. Just that's it. That's it. You can stop publishing everything else. I mean, if we just like halved the number of Batman books, that's half the industry, right? <laughs> Listen, seriously, what titles from DC sell well that do not even remotely involve Batman. Uh, let's go to comic sales January... No, February 2015. That's what comes up. Comicron. I mean, and I say that involves Batman just so we can go ahead and remove Convergence or a tie-in like that. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, 
Superman. <laughs> and where where's that on the list? It's number 25 for February, with Batman being at 5, Justice League being at 10, uh, Detective Comics at 20, Batman and Robin at 21, and then back to Superman at 25. Looking at January, you have, <laughs> when it comes to DC, you have Batman at number 2, uh, Justice League at number 9, so you still kind of got Batman involved there, Harley Quinn, a Batman character, at 11, Detective Comics at 14, Batman and Robin at 15, then 20, 21, 22, and 23 are all Batman Eternal. 24 <laughs> is Batgirl. Then 28 is Batman Superman. And then finally, 33 is when you have your first non-Bat-related title. It is Wonder Woman. I mean, Batman sells. Put him in everything. <laughs> Seriously, that's the method. And it's because Batman's an awesome character. But it says something January, and because I know it's so thrilling to look over these sales, I think I'm going to look at March as well, because we've looked at January and February, so let's go to March. In March, the first non-Batman-related DC book is, number, here's the DC books, at number 9 was Batman Arkham Knight, 14 is Harley Quinn, number 20 is Detective Comics, Batman and Robin is 22, Man at 25. It's like, they can, they can barely break the top 25 without Batman. Is that something related to their to their creative teams or their characters? Probably a little bit of both. I mean, it sells well and attracts the best writers and artists, mm -hmm. so it's going to keep that cycle going. Yeah, Superman is a character that runs largely on nostalgia at this point. There's not a lot for a reader to relate to without having the writer kind of twist an aspect of Superman that basically brings Superman to a human level that, he, that doesn't really exist in the nature of the character. What is that, 50,000? Or is that too too high? <laughs> that, no, that's, that's, uh, that's 50,000, just over 50,000 for March. And I believe that was, what month did they introduce a new Superman power? Uh, that I'm not sure. It was in February. And February was the, you said they were 25. They were, no, they were also 25, yes. Yeah. Uh, what was the sales numbers on that? Do you have that pulled up? Forty forty eight nine, so just about forty nine thousand. So they they introduce a new power to make you care, and people still doesn't really help them their sales. It's almost depressing to watch Superman having uh, declined like this, or it's depressing for maybe a comic book historian. Myself personally, never been a big Superman fan. So bring no, on the only. The, I'd say bring on the hate mail, but nobody listens to this, so. <laughs> Hey, my dad did. Your dad did. Shout, shout out to my dad. My my girlfriend listened to the beginning of the last episode, uh, heard the head on a stick thing, and immediately I get a message that says, that's me! I'm like, it is you! <laughs> so. I was like, have, have we even talked about Alice Cox? <laughs> we did. We briefly ran through it, and then yeah. we somehow got to Batman Superman. And when it comes to decreasing popularity, nothing has decreased in popularity and excitement as much as Ant-Man has in the past year. The once uh, highly anticipated film uh, was expected to come from Edgar Wright. He spent a bunch of time writing it, like nine years, and then something happened and he and Marvel stopped working together. They searched for a replacement, talked to Adam McKay uh, at one point who was wanting to do it but couldn't. So he uh, did some rewrites on the script and Peyton Reed, uh, who, who directed Bring It On, you know, a dance flick, Ant-Man, it's, it's the same thing. Yeah. 
uh, he stepped in. I, I do actually need to say, to Peyton Reed's credit, he has worked on the Weird Al show and uh, Mr. Show and Upright Citizens Brigade. He's also slated to direct the upcoming uh, Brian Epstein biopic, The Fifth Beetle, um, which was another comic book or graphic novel if you're raising your nose at comic books um, adaptation. <laughs> Peyton Reed is – he's publicly nerd. And so he, when he took on the project, obviously there were changes made to it. And uh, Adam McKay and Paul Rudd did rewrites on the Edgar Wright script, and changes were made to it. And this week we got some news about some of the changes. Evangeline Lilly was talking with Empire Magazine about when she decided to join the movie. Initially she had been attached to the movie but hadn't signed on, and then Edgar Wright backed out when that Hearing happened. that news, she jumped on immediately. Yes, precisely. She jumped on and then went to meet up with Paul Rudd to, you know, reaffirm her, her dedication to a Edgar Wrightless film. But she, she says to Empire, I met with Paul Rudd in a little restaurant in New York City, and he talked me through how the movie was changing. I think the most defining difference between the two scripts was that Edgar's didn't take itself as seriously. It was fun and silly and brilliant, irreverent, a romp from beginning to end, says Peter Travers. In classic English fashion, whereas where we've gotten to is so much more American. There's tons of levity, but just as much emotion. What I got out of that yeah. was that Edgar Wright's script was fun, and, you know, what most, I mean, when comparing Marvel to DC, what most Marvel movies are known for, specifically Guardians of the Galaxy, it was just a fun adventure. And coming off of all of Edgar Wright's previous work, you know he's going to make a solid quality movie that's going to give you laughs. With Peyton Reed at the helm, it seems to be a more serious take. And when they say that the movie's got more American, it leads me to believe that there's going to be a lot more uh, spousal abuse in it than Edgar Wright's previous script. Well, you know, in, in, in Peyton Reed's defense, that's something that uh, Hank Pym is notorious for. What's What's interesting is that the the writer on Cinema Blend, Katarina Cowden, she mentions that the consensus was that Edgar Wright's script just didn't fit into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the tone of that universe. But my problem with that is that Guardians of the Galaxy had that fun tone, and it was a space comedy, and I feel like that's what Edgar Wright was going for. Just set, instead of being in the vastness of space, it was going to be set in a miniature scale. In San Francisco, which is in like Francisco. a mini a mini space. Yeah. No gravity there either. To me, I'm wondering where she gets the idea from that that was the definitive reason Wright stepped off. Uh, because I don't think we've ever received a definite reason as to why he stepped off. And I do know that Fahey was actually supportive of Edgar Wright's style and said that Edgar is the only reason we're doing this movie. Uh, but once they had invested so much in it and they knew they had to split from Edgar Wright, you know, they had to keep going. So I don't, I don't know if that's 100% true. And I do think that the movie can still be fun without being Edgar Wright style. One of the things Peyton Reed mentions is that he explores how Hank Pym is a bit tortured. And that's something that, yeah, it's darker, but Hank Pym is synonymous with spousal abuse in Marvel Comics, so are you surprised to see something like that? Is it going to be as good as an Edgar Wright film? I don't know. Probably not. Could it still be good? Yeah. And I think with everybody's lowered expectations, that actually bodes well for it. 
Speaking of lowered expectations, let's talk about how the comic industry treats women. Wait, there's women in the comics industry? Yes, there are, just not in the panels about women's in the comic industry. So recently, at the Denver Comic Con, there was a panel called Women in Comic, which sounds sounds great. Sounds like a panel I would want to go to. But the problem is that all the speakers on the panel were males. And it's really almost a beautiful irony to see happen. It, or it's poetic, almost, that they would say, we need a, co- a panel about women in comics. Let's find women in comics. And they just get a bunch of men. Because it's, it's incredibly reflective of the status of women in comics. And incredibly dumb to do. How could you, in your right mind, okay a panel called Women in Comics, knowing that all the panelists are going to be men? Here's how you make a, a, a panel uh, for Women in Comics. First, you contact the uh, female creators that are going to be there, and you say, hey, we want to do a panel about women in comics. Would you like to participate? If all of them say no, then there is no panel. Only if you have majority women can you hold a panel on women in comics. It's a simple what? rule that doesn't need to be said, but now we're having to say it because Denver doesn't understand it. Seeing a tweet from one of the attendees of Denver Comic Con, at Geek Christie on Twitter, she states that she asked why there weren't women on the panel titled Women in Comics, and they said that they didn't know any, which makes me question a lot of things about these these men. And do they just not know any women in life? Or do they not know anyone in the comics industry? And regardless, I don't see how they could be qualified to do the panel when you're going to talk about women in comics. Trevor Bierschbach, or however you say his last name, responded with, and I love this, were any women denied the opportunity to talk on that panel? Did any women step forward to initiate it? Lots of assumptions. He makes it sound like... It's women's fault. Yeah, it's their fault for not... I can't, I can't even. I'm just like trying to process that. It's great. It's great. It's incredibly defensive and almost political. Let's take a look real quick at who uh, the guests were, uh, what female creators are like... guests at that... Oh, like, at not, Denver not... Comic-Con? Yeah. Let's see what female creators were at that event that could have been pulled in to that panel. Liz Prince was there. Uh, Karen Gillan was there. I believe that she's the current writer on Darth Vader. Uh, yep, that is indeed a woman. Oh, um, Chrissy Zulo, Becky Cloonan, Marguerite Bennett. Wait, I, I do want to back up. Becky Cloonan was at this event, and they and didn't, Bill. and they couldn't get a woman to speak on the Women in Comics panel. Becky Cloonan is not like just some like, oh, you know, she does some random indie stuff. People might know her. She's uh, and maybe it's just to me that I know who Becky Cloonan is, but she's Becky Cloonan. Like she's done stuff. You know, she's worked. She's worked on demo with Gavin Dillinger's best friend, Brian Wood. (laughs) My best friend, Brian Wood. She's worked with my future best friend, Gerard Way, on Killjoys. She's also worked on Gotham Academy and has a series out from Image right now called Southern Cross. Yet she's not unknown um, in the slightest. She's been there, done that, like worked on several notable titles, um, is only, you know, gaining more and more notoriety. So why would you not just ask Becky Cloonan? 
She's already there, and I have a good feeling if you walk up to any woman who works in comics and say, hey, do you want to talk about working in comics and how it can be harder for you? I have a feeling most of them will say yes. So it, it's it's just ridiculous. They also had – oh, Brian Polito was at Denver Comic Con. I don't understand why they couldn't have just pulled him on. He is – listen – he understands the group of women that are under um, underrepresented. He says that they're that he makes comics for the bad girls, which, as I'm saying it, sounds incredibly sexual. And I can't believe that I really didn't catch on to the sexuality of that statement when he said it in the interview. I mean, have you ever seen any of the covers for Lady Death? Those are all bad girls. I try, I try not to look at porn. Only when your girlfriend's not there. No, the new the new intro, <laughs> and Gavin's walking away. I'm sorry. I have really. I feel like I pushed us off track a lot. So, if I had to give Denver Comic Con a rating on their Women in Comics panel, I wouldn't because they didn't even attempt the assignment. Was that a burn? Is that sufficient burning? Let's talk about something different. Yes. Marvel recently withdrew the X-Men and Fantastic Four license from XM Studios, which, you know, there's – I think it's just a coincidence, right? Or there's a, a reasonable explanation? There – I mean, there obviously is. Uh, we actually brought brought forth ten reasonable reasons, so reasonable that they are just flat-out called reasons, uh, that that Marvel would do something like this. And I think a lot of them, you know, some people have scrutinized some of them, but when you really think about it, they're, they're all accurate. The largest of which is nobody gives a crap about the Fantastic Four. I mean, let's just be honest here. It's no one really cares about the Fantastic Four. Should Marvel continue to ruin it for the handful of remaining fans? No. Should we as a comics community pretend like we care about the Fantastic Four? No. No, because we don't. Admit it. Look into your heart and ask yourself, when was the last time you cared about the Fantastic Four? And if Jeff Gordon was popular at the time, then it was probably when I was in third grade in Tennessee. Jeff Gordon's currently popular there. I think he's just perpetually popular, so maybe that wasn't the best argument. I mean, third grade in Tennessee, that's when they graduate, right? Like, you're done with school? Not funny. You know it's fourth. Oh, yeah, it's fourth. But really, looking at uh, the products that were cut, it's really good that they did cut this cable statue because we have a, a large enough gun problem in America that this thing did not need to be added. There are more guns here than variant covers for well, for just any anything that Marvel releases at this point. I will commend XM Studios on their Invisible Woman statue. It's it's really well done. Really? I mean, it from me from my eyes, it looks like just the base. I think they really nailed the character's powers. Yeah, and that's always that's always been a difficult one. I've seen plenty of uh, companies try to maybe make a statue where part of it was see through, but the other part was solid, and it's like that she's not invisible. The mostly invisible yeah, woman. It's it's not that hard of a thing to, to grasp. You don't want a clear, invisible jet. It's not the clear jet. You want it to be invisible. Yeah, you know, crossing universes. 
Why does Wonder Speaking Woman of... have the invisible jet when Invisible Woman is invisible? Shouldn't shouldn't Invisible Woman fly the invisible jet, and then Wonder Woman could fly the regular jet since it's she since she's visible anyways? That is a good question. We'll have to ask Stan Lee and uh, William Moulton Marston. We'll ask them next week. Yes, when they uh, are both of our guests. But that's next week. Speaking of things that are dead, Grumpy Cat comes to comic books thanks to Dynamite Entertainment. I'll be honest, when the email came in, I started reading it and I, I put my phone down and I walked away. And I'll be Gavin because I'm comfortable with who I am. okay seeing this news was not necessarily a surprise to me because everybody is doing this grumpy cat stuff which first off doesn't even i keep hearing like oh there's gonna be a grumpy cat movie there's gonna be a grumpy cat uh tv show or something like that like i'll see an article about that pop up every now and again and then i never see anything out of it it's it's a meme it's just a single meme where is all this entertainment coming from? Like, that, who thinks, well, well, that cat looks really mad. Uh, hmm, uh, maybe I could do an entire story about just a very angry cat. It's, it's, it's Garfield with kidney stones. Okay. Clearly, the folks over at Dynamite Entertainment saw that cat and they thought, we need to get on this. I'm just not sure how much story they can actually get out of out of Grumpy Cat. And what's interesting is that it says, look for the first miniseries released in fall 2015. It implies that there are multiple miniseries. Yeah, there will be future future editions. And something else to note here is they list the year, not the month, which means they see this probably going for a few years. I can go ahead and tell you right now what the Grumpy Cat comic will look like, okay? Open on a child on a playground. They're laughing. Cut to Grumpy Cat. Grumpy Cat is angry. A man proposes to a woman. Cut back to Grumpy Cat. He's still angry. A child has cotton candy for the first time. Grumpy Cat's still angry. Somebody watches a World War II documentary. Grumpy Cat is in the room. He kind of smiles a little because he's just that bit, that tiny bit anti-Semitic. I, uh, I don't see a writer on this book. Is that you, Gavin? Because it sounds like you have some great ideas for the misadventures of Grumpy Cat and Pokey. It is. I, I, I can come out here and say it. I am indeed the writer for Grumpy Cat. I've uh, spent a lot of time working on this. And so, I mean, I was trying to maybe trash it to, to kind of throw you guys off. But uh, I actually just got the email from Dynamite saying I can announce it. I am the writer on Grumpy Cat. And uh, I got a lot, of, a lot of sticks up my butt to prepare for this. It's painful. My anus bleeds regularly, but I think I'm really in the mood that Grumpy Cat is. So, I think I'm ready to write this and to honor every 12-year-old who uh, Googled the word Grumpy Cat. So it's it's a form of, of method writing. It's, it's method writing. Um, when Shakespeare wrote about – when Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, he didn't just write the story. No, he went out and he fell in love, and he burned with a passion so hard that the person he loved – killed herself and he was like okay now i can do this when that japanese dude wrote lolita he he didn't just say i'm gonna write a story about a dude who falls in love with an underage girl he went out and he found himself an underage girl and he fell in love with her it's method writing that's what we do 
just for the future, Lolita was written by a Russian guy. Well, then, let me redo the bit. Nope. And when O.J. Simpson wrote his unpublished theoretical autobiography, If I Did It, he put himself in a situation where everyone thought he murdered someone, even though he didn't. And that's why on the book book cover title, he put the if really small, you know, like a size, like... Eight. Size 8 font compared to the size 72 on the rest of it. So when you're looking at it quickly, it just says, I did it, Confessions of the Killer, O.J. Simpson. Yeah, kind of weird when he starts talking about Zodiac killings, though. Yeah, that's very interesting. Did you also know that O.J.'s name is actually Orange Juice Simpson? Is that why they call O.J. Orange Juice? Well, like, no, like, every time I go to the store to, to pick up some O.J., um, I say, hey, where's the OJ? And they say, you mean the orange juice? I'm like, oh, I don't know the slang term, but yes. Is that why? Was it because of OJ Simpson? I believe so. Didn't he pioneer orange juice? Um, no, he had nothing to do with pies, but he may have, oh. uh, he may have, you know, really kind of launched the orange juice industry. Oh, you're right. Cause there's no orange pies. You have apple pies and right. apple juice. You can't like, compare apples like comparing and apples and oranges. Speaking of apples and oranges, Fight Club. Yes. It has happened. Chuck Palahniuk decided that he was just going to write a sequel to Fight Club. And he decided he was out of money and needed something to make some more. And nothing sells more than a 90s cult classic film and the book that it's based on. So, yes, so Chuck Palahniuk... Steps back in the Underground Fight Club 2, number one. The yeah. first issue, there was originally a, uh, a, a kind of uh, issue zero on free comic book day. Short kind of lead in to all this. Uh, I had the opportunity to, as, as well as you, Tim, um, to read the story uh, about a month ago. Uh, and it was very, very impressed with it. Yes, I believe I wrote a review about a month ago, so if you want to know my thoughts on this, go read it. And since he's already stated his thoughts, I'm going to hold the conversation as if both he and I are talking, but his thoughts are already online, so you're just going to hear my side of the conversation. You can just uh, quote my article as your response. Yeah, I was never really into Rage Against the Machine, and uh, while I was aware of the movie, I actually didn't read uh, the Chuck Palahniuk novel. Yeah, so it's been 10 years since the first one, you're right, and it's the relevance is, is really impressive after all this time. Yeah, and it really could have been, if, you, if it was all about cashing in, um, while it might be a little bit about that in some way, uh, we don't know, but if it was all about cashing in, then he would, have, he would have done this after the movie, after the movie when it really took off. So you're right, it's not just a, a simple cash-in, and there really is a story to it, and you know, as you mentioned, the uh, support group concept is back. And, yeah, the hints of uh, Durden are everywhere, and part of that is in the kind of uh, format breaking that the pills uh, you'll see on the panels are just kind of covering things. They're not addressing the issue. They're just covering something in uh, the narrator's life. Yeah, and Cameron Stewart was certainly an interesting choice. He's, his work over on Bad Girl has been a, a bit cartoony, so when I saw that he was doing art for this, I was a little iffy, but really looking at it, he, it's just, he's phenomenal in this book. 
it's ridiculous. Uh, and I think a large part of that goes uh, credit to Dave Stewart doing colors, um, giving it a lot, a lot of grays and intense reds, um, which is a, a somewhat common technique, but uh, is still a very effective one in regards to uh, creating contrast and intensity. Yeah, the uh, Project Mayhem survey in the front was a lot of was a lot of fun to flip through and to see questions like, "Do you uh, get out of the shower to take a leak?" And your options are A, yes, or B, why? Uh, and I know a lot of guys would choose the latter option, myself included. It doesn't really make much sense. I uh, can't really speak to how women address that issue, but you know, but that's neither here nor there. So. Really if only up. we had some women in comics we could ask. If only! Where could we find women in comics? I don't know any. Neither does Denver Comic Con. Nope. So, uh, thanks for talking with Fight Club 2 about me. <laughs> <laughs> You've also written a review for Chew, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet, so let's just go through this one together. Yes, I can do that, for, just for you. Just for me, thank you. And for readers of Chew, this is probably going to get a little spoilerific if you haven't read issue 49 yet. The cover graces us with the image of El Pollo roasted and buttered in the hands of uh, Chow Chu. Chow Chu, celebrity chef. And uh, it, the story really starts out with uh, it starts out with a prologue that goes directly to a flashback, and it, it, it involves Colby finding the body of the now deceased El Pollo. He finds it. It's a two-page spread. He's standing in a junkyard. There is you know trash and dirt and whatever everywhere. And there's actually some some fantastic stuff lying around. Uh, Tim, there, what the, there's one thing that stuck out to you in particular. And that would be uh, Indiana Jones inside a refrigerator. Yes. Dead this time. There there are some condiments on the door, too, I think. It, I mean, it like, looks like, like it. Are, are, they, are they used? Ew, no. You throw those away after you use them. So, oh. the, and in the, <laughs> in the bottom right corner is actually what I loved, was a uh, long box of comics that says 1990s comics superheroes with mullets and then further down in the bottom right corner is issue one of before watchman ozymandias i wonder if john layman's taking a a pot shot at dc for not letting him write in the the recent classics known as before watchman anyways so we get el pollo and then it just starts it's a lot of kind of mon maybe not montage necessarily but quick cuts in this issue, it bounces from the Granger Kuliabayak. Oh my gosh, you'll have to say that. Granger Kuliabayak. Yes. So it, it flashes to that uh, location, and then it flashes all about to various elsewheres. And th this issue, really, when it comes to setting, is, is a bit um, jumpy, but it's doing a lot to get to get the characters together. Yeah, it's when you have a cast, I mean, it's not too big of a cast, but when the cast is all split up like this, you're going to need quick cuts to just pop in for a couple pages on each character. So it's not a, a huge cast, per se, but there still are about nine or ten characters at play here in three different groups in different locations. And so what Lehman and uh, Guillory try to do is 
uh, bring everyone back together in a way that can fit within an issue, but that isn't too rushed and that doesn't leave the reader feeling cheated. And so one of the ways they do that is they uh, provide you with a lot of a lot of fun, goofy scenes where you have ninjas with sporks. It's not just sporks. It's all utensils. All utensils, yes. But the spork is the important one. Uh, it shows you what Agent Velonzo or Velen, Velenzano would oh, look like. Velenzano. Yeah, it shows you what Agent Velenzano would look like if he fought with the Crab Claw, but he doesn't. Which is really too bad. It's too bad. If like, I had a Crab Claw for a hand, I would fight everyone. I would, I would call up Chuck Palahniuk, and I'd say, listen, get me in on this. Move yeah. me to this other series. And then I would move from Image Comics to Dark Horse Comics over to Fight Club 2. Oh, I, I thought we were going to start our own series called Fight Crab 2. Fight Crab. We got to figure this out. We're going to figure this out. So Chew does it. So Chew number 49 does a lot to really move the story together and it really is priming up for the final I believe 11 issues. Are they going to issue 60? Uh, 60, yes. 60 is the yeah. last. 60 will be the final issue. So um so with where this one ends it, it's it's promising for the future and for what what Tony will be capable of, but there's still eleven issues after this, so there's a lot that's going to happen, and it's going to be insane. What I like is, and what I think will unfold over the next eleven issues, is that Tony knows how to defeat the Collector, but he knows that someone has to die. We the we as readers don't know who that is, but it seems that Tony does, and he's trying to find a way around that death. I was uh, believing that the person who had to die was Poyo. And we do know from various flash-forwards that uh, Tony is being blamed for something at someone's funeral. When is Tony not blamed for something? Yeah. So we know that something, that Tony's going to be blamed for something by Appleby. Uh, We don't know if it's going to be serious, if it's just a gag. We don't really know anything at this point. Was Poyo the person who had to die? Or is there someone else? And is it just, it feels like there's a bit of a waiting game, like Tony's waiting for the right opportunity, but we don't know when that is. So 11 more issues of Chew, if you haven't uh, read the series yet, shame on you to such an incredible extent. So far, we've touched on news, reviews, and a little bit about baboons. Do we want to move on to parks and recommendations? Why not? Let's do it. My recommendation. Hmm. This week... My recommendation is going to go out to pretty much any Comic-Con that actually does comic stuff. At this point, there are so many conventions that are just about actors and are just about meeting checklists. They overlook the important things, like a panel about women in comics that actually includes women. I do want to commend um, Memphis Comic Expo. And I think if you're in the area, you should go by. Um, I'm unfortunately not able to make it, but it is. it has some great names out there. Tim Seeley, Cullen Bunn are going to be over there, um, as well as some, some other uh, solid creators. And it's not, a, it's not a huge convention. And so, you know, I guess my recommendation is small conventions that care about what they're doing. My recommendation for the week is an album that just finished... Uh, recording. It won't actually be out until July, but I'm going to push it now. It is by the band Sledding with Tigers, and it is an entire album about Space Jam. It's eight different songs from different characters' perspectives. Uh, I've heard one so far, 
Uh, it's about the great Michael Jordan. And, I mean, if it's anything like his baseball career, this album will be a, a ground rule double. <laughs> don't think there are many home runs. I don't know, though. All right, so I think we've sufficiently covered everything that's happened in the world in the past week. We need to mention our sponsor. This issue yes. is brought to you by Racial Tension Headaches. In closing, you can visit us uh, where we write articles weekly at theouthousers.com. You can email us at theouthousers at yahoo.com or this podcast specifically at weeklydigestpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I've been Tim Madura. And I'm Gerard Way's future best friend, Gavin Dillinger. Keep your ears pretty. talk about your friendship with Scott Snyder first or um no I think that's a given